Another example we had in the book was a DHL, which just does an outstanding job of continuously experimenting with different types of robotics in its distribution facilities to try and get the best out of the talent they have and the automation that is being introduced. Welcome to Modern Business Operations, where we talk with leaders about how ops is adapting to our modern world. All right. Hey, Ravin, how's it going? Good, thanks, Brianna. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, excited to have you on the show today. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Modern Business Operations. I am your host, Brianna Autry, and I am joined today by Ravin Jesuthasen. And Ravin, did I say your last name right? Did I do it? Indeed, better than most. <laughs> good. The LinkedIn audio is always so helpful for this sort of thing. So yes. I highly recommend if anyone has a difficult last name like myself or Ravin to go in and put that on your LinkedIn because it actually helps people pronounce it correctly. So I'm really excited about today's topic. And I'm always excited about the topics we cover on this show because they're not only interesting to me, but interesting to the automation and operations community as a whole. But this is particularly interesting. I always love interviewing someone about a book because it really structures the conversation in an interesting way. And it ensures that folks are going to walk away with like truly tangible information that they can take with this. And so today we're going to be talking about Robin's book. And Robin, just to introduce you really quickly, is the senior partner and global leader for transformation services and is a best-selling author. And now we'll dig into Robin's background in just a second, but today we're going to be talking about his book, Work Without Jobs, How to Reboot Your Organization's Work Operating System. So with that being said, Robin, I'd love it if you could share a little bit of background on yourself, how you got to your current position, what sort of roles you hold right now in the space. Mm -hmm. Just love an understanding of what we're working with here. Yeah, absolutely, Brianna. So as you mentioned, I lead Mercer's transformation services business globally. And much of the work I do has been around the future of work. So I've written four books on the topic. And I sit on the World Economic Forum Steering Committee on Work and Employment. And I'm also a member of the executive education faculty at Caltech, as well as another group of faculty called the Fast Future Executive. And I started experimenting and learning about the future of work. I think before it was called the future of work it was back in 2007. And it's really when I met my co-author, John Boudreau, and we started with a series of hypotheses that we were able to test with a number of companies. And it aligned really well. This topic aligned really well, Brianna, with my experience and background. So I'm a, what I call a retreaded finance guy. I'm a chartered financial analyst. My bachelor's and master's were in finance. But what really gets me excited is the application of some of the decision science of finance to how organizations operate and how people work. And so for the better part of the last 30 years, I've been in strategy consulting, I've been in human capital consulting, and certainly done a lot of work on the implications of automation for work. So a pretty mixed up, I think, career path. Yeah. And it sort of weaves in and out. So just so I understand correctly, you moved from a finance position into more of a consulting position. What made you make that initial leap over? I've just naturally been a very curious person, but been very curious about from going from analytics to the application and use of analytics, right? Like finance. So how do leaders use free cash flow analysis to drive strategy decisions? How do they use 
sort of various pieces of information from in terms of analytics and finance to make operating decisions. And then that morphed into how do they make decisions about people, right? Because they're such a variable entity, you know, unlike a company which can be viewed as maybe somewhat predictive and precise in you're able to write lots of if-then statements. My initial sense of the way humans made decisions was that there was a level of randomness and unpredictability. And over time, I've actually seen that it's not just completely unpredictable, it's just there are a lot more data sets that need to be brought in, brought to bear to be able to sort of analyze work and the implications of work for the experience of work. So you kind of went from sitting on the sidelines to and learning everything you could and then playing the actual game, right? That's how I look at it. Indeed. Okay. So you've written four books in total at this point? Uh, yep. Yep. And working on my fifth and sixth, actually, at the same time. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm curious about, this is totally off topic, but I think people would be interested. How did you initially get that book deal? Was it for a series? Was it for just one at a time? Are they all separate? Yeah, they're all separate. Our first two books were with Wiley. The first book was called Transformative HR. And what we wanted to do was really build on some ideas that John had started to develop in his books, things we had been writing about together in various Harvard Business Review articles and the like, to essentially bring more decision science into HR. So instead of just talking about the transformation of the HR function, which has been going on for a long time, how could HR as a profession and a discipline and a function be transformative to how companies manage their human capital? What's the decision science that underpins that? So very close adjacency to my work in finance was kind of our first mm -hmm. book together. And then progressively took that into other areas all related to the future of work and automation. Okay, so this is your latest masterpiece, I'll call it. Let's talk about it. So in Work Without Jobs, you explore the concept of work beyond traditional job structures. So mm -hmm. what inspired you to delve into this topic specifically and write this book? Yeah, so this book, Brianna, builds on our last two books. So our second book together was called Lead the Work, Navigating a World Beyond Employment. And the third one was Reinventing Jobs, a four-step approach for applying automation to work that was published by the Harvard Business Review Press. And that first book really explored how work was moving beyond the organizational boundary. Think of gig workers, offshoring, outsourcing, alliances, different types of collaboration. And while the second explored how automation and humans can best be combined with about 130 case studies. And both books provided leaders with frameworks for decision-making, several dozen examples and case studies. But at the heart of both of those books was this big idea or the principle of work deconstruction as a critical foundation for increasing the agility of the organization to respond to emerging automation, rampant growth and digitalization, threats like the pandemic. And what we wanted to do with this book was to build on those two ideas and actually delve into deconstruction and present it as a fundamental element of a new work operating system that we think is essential for navigating this emerging world of work. Moving on, I could talk about all of your books. I would want to focus on this most recent one. So in the book, you sort of argue that traditional employment structures are becoming less relevant. And this kind of goes into your idea of work deconstruction. Could you provide some examples or case studies that demonstrate 
how this shift is taking place and the benefits of offering it to individuals? Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, we had literally dozens of case studies, and I'll just highlight a couple. So one of the first case studies was of a company called Genentech. Genentech is based in San Francisco. It's in the Bay Area. It's the U.S. subsidiary of Roche Pharmaceuticals, so largest pharmaceutical company in the world. And the thing that they did was they were incredibly progressive because right at the start of the pandemic, they said that, look, this thing is going to be with us for a long time. Unlike myself, we thought, oh, six weeks, and I'll be back traveling. This thing is going to be with us for a long time. It's going to fundamentally change how we think about work and how we think about where work is done and when it's done and how it's done. And so we need to develop a much more progressive model that isn't just responding to the pandemic, but allows us to sort of actually retool the way work is organized to be able to meet more people where they are and on their terms. And so they use this notion of deconstruction as a way of moving beyond the headlines of a job to basically create a much more equitable and inclusive approach to flexible working that was based on the elemental tasks and activities that people did, as opposed to these one job titles, like I'm an accountant, so I get to work remotely whenever I want, and you're an R&D scientist, so you have to be on site, et cetera. But actually by getting to the tasks and activities, they saw where they could inject flexibility into all types of work. So Genentech would be one example of that, of starting with the work as opposed to the job. Another example we had in the book was a DHL, which just does an outstanding job of continuously experimenting with different types of robotics in its distribution facilities to try and get the best out of the talent they have and the automation that is being introduced. And instead of doing what many companies do of leading with tech, they actually lead with the work, which as we've shown in that third book I mentioned, that the companies who lead with the work get to consistently and sustainably much higher order outcomes than the ones who merely just throw tech at a problem, who see a more binary narrative between the talent who's doing the work today and the technology that's coming. So that was another organization. Third example, very large European insurance company, which essentially given its shortage of data scientists, they moved to a much more agile cloud-based construct where that talent was connecting to work seamlessly through projects and assignments, as opposed to being captive in one part of the organization and not being able to get to work where their skills were needed across a global enterprise. And they, as a result of this new structure, this democratized boundaryless work ecosystem, saw a 600% gain in the productivity of their data scientists over an 18 month period. So three pretty different examples of how yeah. some of these principles have played out. This episode is brought to you by Tonkin. Tonkin is the operating system for business operations, providing businesses with the building blocks to orchestrate any process with no code or change management required. Contact us at Tonkin.com to learn how you can build complex processes fast. And if you're interested in staying up to date on all things business operations, join the Adaptive Ops community at operations.community. So you mentioned starting with work instead of the job. Can you elaborate on what that means? So what I mean by that is today in any job, every job is made up of activities and tasks and that make up what that job is. 
But the job often is can be very limiting because it might be a job in one part of the organization. And having a job doesn't allow you to see at a more elemental level what are the tasks that are there? Are those tasks best done in that part of the business versus being moved elsewhere? And so at the heart of this notion of deconstruction that underpins work without jobs is this notion of starting with the activities. It's really four principles, right? It's starting with the activities that are there today and the ones to come, not how they're organized into jobs or functions. Asking the question of what's the optimal way to combine automation and the talent performing those activities. Once you figure that out for the work that's going to be done by the talent, what's the best way for them to connect to the work? Should it be a job, which might be the right answer, but increasingly the right answer might be, it's actually not a job. It's someone who is a gig worker or someone who is doing an internal gig. It might be centralization. It might be offshoring or shared services. And then the fourth principle is how do we consistently reduce the frictional cost of work so that talent can connect to work as it emerges unbounded, if you will, from many of these legacy constraints of, I'm in this job, in this part of the world, in this function, et cetera, as opposed to, I have the skills to do the work and I'm going to contribute to solve these problems and use my skills to address them and thus contribute to the mission of the organization. So what you're proposing is leadership or whomever look at, remove everything from the equation and just look at the work that needs to be done across the entire company and then assign that out specifically to individuals based on their specific skill sets as opposed to like, this is a job and you only do this. Am I understanding it correctly? That is the long-term nirvana. And what we lay out in the book is kind of that journey map for getting there. Because, you know, at the heart of this, Brianna, if you think about it, right, we've had this thing called a job for about 140 years. And we yeah. have, in that time, all of this institutional legacy and leadership muscle and programs and processes that have been built up to make this thing called a job work. And what we're finding now is that it is not enabling us to respond fast enough in a more effective manner and to take advantage of emerging automation. And so it is constricting the ability of organizations to stay relevant in the 21st century. And so how do we start to transition to that more agile construct where talent is connecting to work more seamlessly, where talent has signals and assets and resources to keep reinventing itself? So it's that journey that we are proposing with this new work operating system. I see. So we're a long way from what I mentioned, but ideally we would get there. But there are many companies that have made a lot of progress, which is what we were trying to highlight in the book. Mm, got it. Okay. All right. So I want to talk about sort of the themes. So one of the central themes in your book is the role of technology in transforming work dynamics. I know you mentioned earlier, like people throw tech at a problem as opposed to looking at the systems and the people already involved. So how do you see emerging technologies like AI and automation shaping the future of work without jobs? Yeah, this is an area that John and I have spent a ton of time and I've actually spent a lot of time since last year on the implications of generative AI on work as given how prolific it has been. The one thing that's important is, you know, as I mentioned a second ago, automation and AI never replace entire jobs, right? What they actually do is they substitute certain repetitive, often rules-based activities, they augment 
activities that require critical thinking, that require analytical capability, that, that require empathy, innovation, care and concern, etc. And they also create either the space for new human work or the demand for new human skills, because you're now applying those skills in a more digital context. And I think this is where it gets really interesting, Brianna, with generative AI, because I think it's one of the few times where the hype associated with automation and with a new technology might actually match up with the reality because of the way in which it democratizes knowledge and creativity. And we're starting to see some really interesting studies that point to some pretty significant productivity gains, whether that's with the use of a tool called Codex, which you may be familiar with, where Codex, you know, uses a large language model. And what we've seen is that it's actually enabling software engineers to code twice as fast using Codex. We're seeing that the use of chat GPT-3 and now chat GPT-4 has enabled economists to be 10 to 20% more productive with some of these models. And we've seen situations where analytical talent was able, people who were engaged in creative writing were much more productive, in some cases, 25% more productive as a result of using some of these tools. So I think it's going to be really interesting, but I'm hoping that those examples make some sense. They absolutely do. I think you hit the nail on the head. And that's something that we preach here at Tonkin is that automation and AI don't replace jobs. They just increase the person doing the job's efficiency and allow them to work at a higher level with more strategy involved as opposed to more rote manual tasks. So the transition to work without jobs has implications for both individuals and society as a whole. We've kind of covered a little bit of that. So what are some potential benefits and challenges that might arise from this shift? And how can organizations and policymakers address them effectively, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think a number of things come to mind, right? So if you think one of the things I was efforts I was involved with earlier this year is the World Economic Forum's Good Work Alliance, where we developed a framework and a charter for ethical and responsible work for a much more inclusive future of work. So the as work changes and what we're seeing is the need for talent to keep reinventing itself because organizations are going to keep reinventing themselves as new automation comes in, as more work gets combined, more work gets influenced by generative AI and the large language models. So ensuring that talent has the support, the resources, and the opportunities to keep upskilling and reskilling, I think is going to be one of the critical things so that we aren't exacerbating the inequality that already plagues many societies. I think one of the positives that we saw over the CARES Act was during COVID was for the first time, gig workers and contingent labor were actually covered by that because we are going to see continued velocity and volatility of talent moving between full-time employment and gig work or over time. And as Brianna, in many instances, talent was engaged in both full-time employment and gig work at the same time. But as more and more automation comes in, as we see more volatility in the economy, ensuring that we've got a safety net that is much more encompassing becomes really important. We've seen in a number of countries like Singapore and in France, the government's actually being really mindful about 
how do we extend those safety nets to ensure that people have the opportunities to reskill and upskill as their work is changing? You know, we're seeing the half-life of so many technical skills shrink dramatically. Professions that have existed for, you know, hundreds of years now have a half-life of, in some cases, less than 10 years. As skills become the currency for work, do we have not just access to learning resources, but support systems like childcare and stipends, et cetera, to support people while they are upskilling and reskilling. So I think mm -hmm. those are going to be some of the things that we need to ensure that we have a much more inclusive future of work rather than yeah. what we've seen for the last 30 years where inequality has just been exacerbated as a result of some of the technologies we've been using. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you know, if you look at the structure of things today, there's so many opportunities to learn. But in terms of like, you could get a full degree in anything at this point for free on the internet. But the validity of that and putting that into practice is the a step that I think we haven't quite figured out yet. We've put all the information out there, but we right. haven't yet taught people a way to like, okay, now I'm going to take that and actually have a full-time job that works for this role and the skills that I've learned. Yep. Yeah. So I think that you're right. That's going to be definitely a struggle. Okay. So before I move on, any last thoughts or messages you want to get across about this book? Beyond buy it? <laughs> well, actually, we have a free resource available, which is kind of a preview of the book. It's about 20 pages long if people want to look at it. And it's on the website, www.workwithoutjobs.com. And so you'll be able to get a preview of the book so you know a little bit about it before you buy it. Yeah. So, okay. So definitely go to workwithoutjobs.com to buy Robin's book, Work Without Jobs. I'm going to be buying it. I did a quick skim and I'm excited to dig in more. I think that knowing about this, even if it's not your area of expertise, is really valuable in terms of how you look at your career moves, where you're going to be working, how you're going to apply certain skills to certain roles. So I think anyone having access to this information is highly valuable. No, Robin is not sponsoring the podcast. He's just a guest, but I think his book is definitely worth checking out. So I would highly recommend it. Okay. So I ask everyone this question at the end of the podcast, what's the best advice you've ever received in your career? So I'm a really big fan of the futurist Alvin Toffler, and there are so many things that he predicted that I've seen manifest the last sort of 20 years or so. But the one thing that he said that has really been kind of almost like my sort of touchstone, right, for my career was he said the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who can't read and write. It will be those who can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. And I think that is so absolutely spot on for what is being asked of not just individuals, but organizations. That is extremely good advice. I need to look into Alvin Toffler. I don't know who that is, but I am definitely going to check that out. Thank you, Robin, for talking about your book today. I'm mm -hmm. really excited about to see what your next book is about. And thanks for everyone listening in. As always, we enjoy your listenership. Make sure to subscribe and rate and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen. And thank you again, Robin, for coming on the show. Thanks, Brianna. Great seeing you. Great seeing you too. Have a good one. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Business Operations. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at tonkin.com slash mbopod. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. 